This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. That was a lot of episodes on the I-70 killer. Weirdly, we've been covering this because I had started down a couple of weird rabbit holes. And you did a lot of work on this guy, sort of from the perspective of, of covering him straight out. But then the way I had set it all up, I was wondering if something... This, was, this actually goes all the way back to 2023 when we were uh, recording season four, I was wondering if this guy was going to have some serious news. He does have a little bit of news and we're going to get to that, but it's not as much as I thought it would be. I wanted to start out by saying, uh, or by bringing something full circle that we briefly talked about in the I-70 Strangler cases. This case is tied to Westfield, Indiana. And Westfield, Indiana is where Richard Allen is being held. And Richard Allen is the person accused in the Delphi cases a lot of drama went on up to this point with Richard Allen's case. It looks like in 2024, he's finally going to get a trial. I had never thought about this from the perspective of all of these things being tied to that area. And to be honest, I thought I knew more about this particular killer than I did. So bringing him into the mix now is it's specifically because he was sort of the last suspect of the I-70 Strangler killings. So we, we talked about Larry and we sort of, in my opinion, we sort of rule Larry out in some of them related to stabbing versus strangling. Don't you think? Yeah, I thought so. In February of 1998, Police get a tip from an Indianapolis resident about a business guy who had been photographed leaving the Vogue Theater with one of the possible I-70 Stranglers victims, a guy named Michael Riley, who we talked about Michael's death. And this guy ends up becoming the prime suspect in the murders of at least seven men who were killed between 1993 and 1995, if you go look at the I-70 Strangler case now, somehow he gets officially attached to it. This guy has one of the strangest stories, and I don't think anyone has covered it correctly, including all the mainstream media, there are a lot of little blurbs about him that you could read. Even, even now, there's stuff coming out about him. And I'm not going to really bury the lead on this one. This is Herb Baumeister. And he, he was born Herbert Richard Baumeister. If you go reading about him, he was born in April of 1947. He's the oldest of four children. His 
Uh, dad was a doctor. Specifically, he was an uh, anesthesiologist. Overall, he was reportedly completely normal in childhood until he wasn't. So you can think about that ever how you want to. It's rumored that he started exhibiting antisocial behavior kind of when he went into adolescence in his teen years. I have read little dribs and drabs where people talk about Herb Baumeister talking about uh, urophilia, uh, which is a paraphilia where people get sexually excited from the sight or the thought or the smell of urine or urination or and, and the sound. It was rumored that he liked to play with dead animals. He had peed in a classroom, apparently on a teacher's desk. His father had noticed him behaving this way. And the family's response to her, the father's response specifically, but I, I think kind of collectively the family, they take him off to have him examined by psychiatrists. He ends up being diagnosed as potentially having the onset of paranoid schizophrenia and possibly having an antisocial personality disorder. And I say possibly to that because it's really just one set of doctors and those doctors sort of proclaim this and then suddenly nothing is done about it. Now, I know, I know you had heard about this guy before, right? Like this is not somebody new on your radar. Right. When you uh, started looking at this, I know you did quite a bit of work early on. Did you realize like that the mainstream media coverage was so weird on this case? Like, like early? Did or I realize? Take- well, it just has never made sense. I've never followed it. And this is, I guess, possibly where that comes from. This is a situation where we have no question that human remains were found on his property, right? Yeah. yeah. And he, in a very short amount of time... Like, while the police are getting warrants to search, he disappears and commits suicide, right? Yes. Okay. And so it blows my mind that you could have this guy who had numerous remains recovered on his residential premises the grounds, right? And you've linked him to the I-70 Strangler. Yeah, it's like a huge leap for me. And well, it has never made sense to me because what what are they even talking about? Well, that's sort of what we're going to discuss here. I pulled uh, we've used these before. This is a little more interesting one. Uh, there's an actual profile timeline, whatever you want to call it. It's out of the the Department of Psychology at Radford University. And they kind of write it up like a real criminal profile would look. This one was written by, I believe they're all students here, but if I'm wrong on that, I apologize. Uh, Natasha Albert, Aaron Allen, Sherry Armistead, and Josh Bradley. It sort of gives us a timeline of Herb's life. I thought we would talk about this kind of go all the way through it in one episode 
And then also go ahead and talk about the fact that like, not only is this guy linked to the I-70 strangler side of things, if we divide the I-70 killings that are kind of misnamed in the first place into, all right, we read a lot about a bunch of stabbings and a lot about a bunch of stranglings. The I-70 stranglings aren't really investigated anymore because of this guy. However, he has a whole different series of murders. And uh, I wanted to kind of get to that because everything with this dude is the opposite of the benefit of hindsight. (laughs) We talk about like the passage of time and being able to look back on something like helping us. It does not do that here for some reason. One of the wildest parts about this is, and I'm just going to throw, go ahead and throw this out there with Herb Baumeister, where his case like quote ends, it's actually off the Monin trail in Indiana. Did you realize that? No, I don't know what that is. So the Monin trail, there are different parts of this, but the Monin trail is uh, the bridge where the Delphi murders took place is off one of the Monin trails. Does that make sense? It's not in the same place. I just thought that was like the weirdest thing. Wow. Um, well, so like Monin High Bridge, Monin Trail, all of these things being sort they're they're not connected like really close geographically. I just thought it was interesting that so much takes place in Indiana. And the more I dig into Indiana, the weirder it gets. Okay, so the timeline that we have for uh, Herb Baumeister, by the way, it starts at the top saying I-70 Strangler with him. Which, right. That that sound is exactly what's going on in my head with this. I feel like that they've done... Uh, And by they, I mean, this is the Radford profile. They have it in quotes. Um, He has been unofficially designated as the I-70 Strangler, Mm -hmm. who is different than the I-70 Killer, right? Yeah. And the I-70 Strangler... I can't even make the connection between, like, his... I would say anybody who was found on his property, 100% they're his victim, okay? I can't even make the connection between the two... I Like, between Herb Baumeister's remains on the premises... And this gigantic leap, not only in proximity, but in time backwards yeah. to this I-70 Strangler situation. I, I was hoping that through researching this, I was going to figure it out. That has not occurred. Right. And not only that, this is one of the rare cases where everything gets more murky the more you clarify. I I don't Uh, think it's been clarified. Well, no, that's what I mean. Like, you can't actually clarify it. It's sort of the irony of that. I think that it was, 
somebody was like, oh, he must have been the one doing all the I-70 strangler stranglings. And then it seems like at some point we had sort of maybe figured out a possible reason that it was referred to as the I-70 strangler. Sort of, yeah. Except. That didn't make sense either. He's born April 7th, 1947. Um, his parents are Herbert and Elizabeth, same last names. Uh, 1948, his sister Barbara's born. 1954, his brother Brad is born. And 1956, his brother Richard is born. So by 1961, he starts attending North Central High School. By all accounts, he's sort of active in school. Nothing exciting there. They have three quotes from friends in here that uh, one friend remembers that Herb used to ponder what it'd be like to taste human urine. Uh, one is found a dead crow in the road, put it in his pocket and place it on his teacher's desk when she wasn't looking. That's another comment from a friend. Uh, and then that comment about his father secretly taking him to get psychological testing done. And they note here there's no further documentation. And I've never seen any documentation of this. It says in high school, he was not part of the in crowd. He was usually alone and he never dated. By 1965, he had graduated high school and he went to Indiana University. That's where he meets uh, the woman who will become his wife. And this is uh, Juliana Sater. Apparently, they were drawn to each other because they were both uh, in, according to this, they both had strong conservative views. And I'll just leave that here for a second. Uh, 1967, when he's 20 years old, he drops out of college and he starts working at the Indianapolis Star as a copy boy. 1971, when he's 24, he gets married to Juliana. Now, in 1972, he's been married for six months. And he spends two months in a psychiatric hospital. From 1974 to 1985, he works uh, works for the, the BMV, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. There were some odd behaviors observed at times. He sent out Christmas cards that had a photo of him and another man dressed in drag on it, according to this. He had earned the title of a program director with the BMV. There was a a letter that was going out that was addressed to the governor. We don't have a lot of details on this, but allegedly he urinated on it, and he ended up being terminated in 1985. To, to give you an idea of what was going on in Herb's life at the same time, in 1979, while he's working at the BMV, his first child is born when he's 32 years old. 1981, still at the BMV, his second child is born. First child's a daughter, second child is a son. 1984, right before he gets fired, he is 37 years old when his wife gives birth to their third child, uh, uh, also a daughter. Okay, so in 1985... An interesting series of murders sort of began. And it starts out with the death of Eric Redinger. No matter how you like look at everything, that is that is the first thing that they throw in for her. Now, in terms of us, we've already talked about him. He was on the list of people who had been strangled 
by the theoretical I-70 Strangler. He vanished on May 7th of 1985, and his body was found in Preble County, Ohio, a few days later, face down in a creek, I believe, is the best way to describe that. Um, he had last been seen waiting at a bus stop on March this, uh, May the 7th. So that happens in here right after the, or shortly after the birth of his third child. All right. September 1985, while he's uh, drinking and driving, he commits a hit and run. And in March of 1986, when Herb is 39 years old, there's a warrant filed for his arrest where he is charged with auto theft and conspiracy to commit theft. In, uh, later in 1986, he has a bench trial, a one-day bench trial, and he gets out of uh, the, the charge of conspiracy to commit theft. And I think he gets out of the auto theft. Somehow that auto theft was a class A misdemeanor. It doesn't sound, it sounds more like um, the charge that I know is like uh, basically using a vehicle without permission, if that makes sense. Yeah, he didn't steal it from a stranger. Right. So, also in 1986, Herb Baumeister, who is Herb Baumeister's father, he dies. So, you know, he's 40 years old when this happens. All right. 1988. I think he's 41 still when this happens. He borrows a couple of grand from his mom. And he opens what becomes known as the Save-A-Lot Thrift Store which weirdly does well. After making about $50,000 uh, from the time he opens it to 1990, he's going to open up a second store. August 12th, 1989, the body of Stephen Elliott is found. Now, Stephen Elliott is another one of the... Stephen Elliott is another victim that is found on the side of the road in Preble County, Ohio. What's interesting about Stephen and Eric is, according to what I've read about them, they're both believed to have been strangled with a rope, specifically. Those are in this profile here. Now, when we get to August of 1990, we have Clay Boatman being found. Clay Boatman... Is he's different than all of the other victims related to the I-70 Strangler. He's a local licensed practical nurse. And he disappears from Richmond, Indiana, from OP's bar, which is the R Place bar you and I have talked about before. He's he's 32. He's 32 years old. He's not a teenager. And uh, just for reference, Stephen Elliott was 26 and Eric was 17. Right. Which one of the interesting things about Clay Boatman is his family, in some accounts, does not seem to know that he is gay. And that, like these other kids, like they're not all gay per se, but like some of them, as we've talked about over and over again, have ties to the gay community in different ways. Not necessarily the case with Clay Boatman. About a year later, little over a year later, November of 1991, Herb and his family moved to the Westfield District. Then there's a series of events that happen here 
that we haven't talked about yet. They aren't really related to, for the most part, to the... I-70 Strangler? To the I-70 Strangler. But I just realized something. They get some of these names wrong. On yeah, they do. And I wanted to point this out that... Um, okay, this is re-reported in the media. This is attached to a bunch of stuff on Wikipedia and other places online. I'm going to roll through this from their perspective, but I'm also going to tell you what's going on here. All right. According to this, the way they wrote it up, May 1993, when Herb is 46, they say that 22-year-old Michael Riley disappears. And that gets repeated a little bit online. However, Michael Riley went missing in May of 1983. It's just a date problem here. But he doesn't link to what we're about to talk about. We've already talked about Michael Riley. He is associated with the I-70 Strangler. In this profile, if you come across it on, online, unfortunately, that piece of information is incorrect. All right. Now we're going to talk about a, just a couple of names, and then we're going to tell you sort of what happened with them. This is all happening while... Herb is around 46 years old, which, in my opinion, is a little old for a serial killer to be doing what he is alleged to have done here. But we're going to hold off on that. May 28th of 1993, Johnny Bayer, who is a 20-year-old white male, goes missing or is reported missing. Uh, in July of 93. 31-year-old Jeffrey Jones, uh, also a white male, is reported missing. In July of 1993, we also have Richard Hamilton, who's a 20-year-old white male, reported missing. Uh, August of 1993, we have a 27-year-old white male named Alan Livingstone reported missing. Okay. That's a lot. You've got four guys... And these guys are between the age of 20 and 31. They're all reported missing between the end of May, May 28th, and August the 6th of 1993. So we have that spurt of four guys that go missing. Then in April of 1994, starts happening again. Stephen Hale goes missing. He's a 26-year-old white male. June of 1994, Alan Broussard goes missing. He's a 28-year-old white male. And then Roger Goodlett goes missing. He's 34 years old. Uh, white, he's a 34-year-old white male who goes missing on July 22nd, 1994. At the same time that's going on in 1994, the Save-A-Lot business begins to not go well. Like it's it the they describe it as plunging on here. He's losing money. There are problems in the marriage between Herb and Juliana, his wife. Uh Herb started looking down on his employees. And according to this profile, there were reports of him leaving the store and returning with alcohol in his breath, implying that he was going out drinking. He also gets arrested for drinking and driving in Rochester, Indiana, and he gets sentenced to three days in jail and one year of probation. Now, in 1994, according to this, 
his son, Eric, finds a human skeleton in the backyard. And Herb is able to assure his family that it's the remains of a cadaver from his father's medical practice. And his father was his, he was an anesthesiologist, like we said. So he kind of gets the suspicion thrown away a little bit there off of him by his family. But still, that's a suspect thing. You've got bones in the yard. And this is in Westfield, Indiana. The place that they live is called Fox Hollow Farm. I feel like um, his wife's reaction, which will come up, to that entire situation is very telling. Why do you think it's telling? Well, they they bought his explanation. Yeah. So, <laughs> or at least they didn't run screaming from the property. I don't know about you, but if there was a skull found on my property, I would not be buying any explanation that was given. Right. No, nor would I be even trying to investigate it. I would turn it over to the cops. Right. And that did not happen. No, it didn't. So, to me, it's very telling that, you know, whether or not they believed what was being said, like this was my dad, one of my dad's specimens. He said it was a specimen. Cadavers, yeah. Yeah, a dissecting cadaver. Yeah. And so, whether or not, like, that's a. Even if it were, it's a weird thing to have out in the yard, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. To give people a a visual image of this, their backyard has some woods to it. Not a forest exactly, but some woods to it. And this is a complete human skeleton that is partially buried in the ground. And it has basically, some of the dirt is washed away, so his kid is able to grab a hold of it. Right. And in, you know, human bodies, even dissecting cadavers, they were once people. Right. And it is not, uh, it's not something, now granted he did say it was his father's, but you're not going to find a whole lot of medical doctors who like randomly have their dissecting cadavers out in the yard buried, much less having their son taking them and like, I guess this was probably like 10 years after his dad had died. Right. Mm-hmm. Having this out there. Right. Um, there's all kinds of things that come along with like how you dispose of a dissecting cadaver when you're done with it. And burying it in the yard is not one of them. Correct. And so to me, it's telling that it was all but brushed off as a completely normal occurrence, which it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are. That is not a normal occurrence. No, it's not at all. Um, it, it's- if you, there's something you can see his wife talk. Um, I, I don't know that it's recent. It may be from more towards the late nineties when this was sort of happening, but she's pretty genuine in her like explanation. Right. Yes. And I think you poor woman, right. That's what I think to myself because she just, I don't know if she just, 
blindly look the other way or what. But even as it's coming out of her mouth, I can't believe she's believing it. Well, I can't believe she would even say it now, right? Even though it's what happened, it's kind of like, yeah, you're, if that's what you're thinking, Um, especially because your child found it, like there was more information that should, that should have caused more questions than it did. That should have made everybody panic and call the police. So in case you're aware, if you find bones in your yard, no matter what anyone tells you, panic and call the police. Right. Especially if somebody's telling you like, oh no, this is completely normal. It is not. It's no. not normal. It is not even remotely normal. But even to this day or to the point where she was giving interviews about it, she did not see that as a flashing neon red flag. We don't have any more disappearances happening here. We do have, so we have another incident. Okay, so we have this whole dissecting cadaver skeleton specimen incident in 1994 where Eric finds a human skeleton. August of 1995, Herb goes to a gay bar and a guy named Tony Harris gets his license plate number. Somewhere, the dots are starting to align in the gay community and with the police related to Herb. It's going to take a minute for that to happen. But in November of 1995, about three months after this incident where his license plate number is taken down in his car, the police come to Herb's wife and they say, we need to talk to you about your husband. And there's a confrontation there where they're trying to get her away from him and get her to talk about him. Doesn't go well. Herb tells his lawyer that he has it this time. This is just according to the Radford profile that he's going to kill himself. And about a month and a half later, on January 4th of 1996, Juliana files for divorce. By June of 1996, all the Save-A-Lot stores or the two, the two Save-A-Lot stores are closed. And... Uh, the description of her by employees and people who knew him, I won't describe them as friends, but maybe acquaintances. They say that Herb seems deeply troubled, which I would agree with that being the understatement of the century. By June 23rd, 1996, Juliana finally tells that story about the bones in the backyard to her attorney. And then as she starts to talk more and more to people, she admits that they had only had sex six times in 25 years of marriage. And she also indicates that she had never seen her husband without clothing, which is bizarre to me. Seven days later, by June the 30th, 1996, Herb becomes aware that he's about to be arrested for the missing persons cases that I described here. And he drives to Canada. Now, Within a couple of days, on uh, July the 3rd, 1996, Herb commits suicide. He leaves a note citing his failing marriage and business as the reason for his suicide, and he shoots himself in the forehead with a 357 Magnum. All right. That's the profile timeline that we have. And we're going to talk about some stuff that's related to these items and around these items. Uh, then they get into the general information about Herb what we kind of know about him. 
So he's a white male. And under a number of victims, he's linked to 18, but assumed to be more. I'm going to put a pen in that. We're going to come back to it. Uh, the country where the killing occurred was the United States. The states where the killing occurred on here is indicated to be Indiana and Ohio. Uh, the type of killer is he's indicated to be a sexual killer. Herb's height is allegedly unknown, although I'd say he's probably around 5'10 to 6 foot, wouldn't you? I have no idea. Like in the videos I've seen, he doesn't he look looks much taller. Average. Yeah. Could be 5'10. Could be you're right, it could be a little shorter. Just he's very average looking. There's guy. nothing, there's nothing uh in what I've seen of him, which isn't a lot, uh, that would indicate any sort of like notable thing about his height. Like he's super tall or super short. It's just he looks average. Yeah. We already know his date of birth is April 7th, 1947. His uh Birth location is Columbus, Ohio. He's the first of four siblings. They do not indicate if he had an XYY chromosome, which we've talked about before. Uh, he was raised by both parents. He was the oldest, and his parents were together. Problems in school were that he did not fit in. He was teased in school. Was he physically attractive? They indicate yes. I'm just going to pause that and say... I, like he's not unattractive. He's not. He's unremarkable in every single way. Um, I think a better question would be like, is this person repulsive? Yeah, I. He's not repulsive. Right, and that's how I feel like they. Um, you, they that they would be a better that? call. Yeah. Huh. If they if they address that, that would be a better way to look at it. Well, just the way that I've seen these. Um, Profiles go down. Uh, they're not awarding like a best looking award here, right? It's like they're, it, as long as the person doesn't have anything that like is repulsive, usually they get a yes here. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's a problem because I think, I think the appearance of serial killers is largely overstated. Like I've heard Ted Bundy called handsome or something and i don't like i think he's pretty average looking uh even bunny well, he's charming but he's not that charming right yeah you're right mm -hmm. so um physical defects uh two screws in his jaw from a surgery uh he did not have a speech defect it's unknown if he had a head injury he was allegedly physically abused by his father and his classmates it's unknown if he was psychologically abused. It says that he was not sexually abused. And then everything after that's kind of weird. Okay, and, th and this will kind of end this. His parents didn't abuse drugs. His dad's an anesthesiologist. His mom's a homemaker. Age of first sexual experience is probably his wife. He did not date much before her. So we're just jumping to that. Um, and he's dead, so we don't have any other way to verify any of this. Age when he first had air, uh, intercourse is probably his wife. So probably his first like sexual experiences and intercourse, according to these kids, are going to be with his wife when he got married. They skip through everything else we said. They indicate here that he did not have any of the the triad. So he wasn't you know torturing animals, fire setting, or bedwetting, according to what they're saying. I have seen a couple of different things where he is messing around with animals a little bit. I'm just not sure what he's doing. Have you, so we talked about this raccoon thing where 
Yeah, he's not. That, I don't feel like that was part of that. It's just really weird. Well, we have the dead crow thing in, that's reported to have happened when he was in. You know, I've heard more about roadkill with serial killers than I have about like actual animal torture. I've heard about some animal torture, and it is bad. I don't know. There's just, there's some kind of like almost a necro obsession with dead things that I think might be coming across here. He did not. So, okay. His highest grade in school was his second year of college. His highest actual degree was his high school diploma. He didn't serve in the military. He had never applied for a job as a cop. According to this, he had never worked in law enforcement, but he had worked for the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. And in a way that is also sort of an authoritative job. Um, he had worked as a copier, a clerical person, various part-time jobs, and finally owned uh, the Save-A-Lot thrift stores. His employment status during his series of homicides, they get off track here, but they say basically Save-A-Lot and then possibly during other jobs. His sexual preference is listed as bisexual. I don't know how they know that. Maybe his wife knew enough to fill us in there. Just, have you heard her talk about that part? Um, the reason that it's said to be bisexual is because there there are accounts, at least one, of men who went home with him. Right. And they didn't die. Right. My, there, if, the if, presumption is being made that he had sex with his wife six times and produced three children. I don't know then, that that makes you bisexual. And then you... Well, I don't either. I'm saying I feel like they are making this connection. Okay. Yeah, that's how they're getting there. Uh, I would agree with that. I'm not saying I'm doing it. I'm saying I feel like that's why it says that on the sheet. Yeah. Uh, marital status is uh, married, but in the middle of divorce at a time of death. And I wasn't indicating you were. I was saying I see how they're, I understand how they're getting to bisexual. I don't agree with that. Um, and I think it's important to say that because I actually think he's homosexual and I think he's angry. And I think that's a part of all of this as we go. I think that's a pretty clear, um, yeah. Yeah. with a lot of guys. Well, yeah. Number of children. He has three children. He was extremely involved in their lives and he lived with his children. He also lived with his spouse. Uh, now it gets down here to the psychological information of the alleged killer and it says abused drugs. It says yes to cocaine and marijuana, abused alcohol. It says yes. It says been to a psychologist. It says hospitalized for two months. And then uh, time in forensic hospital, no. And then it says diagnosis. Father secretly took him to a psychologist as a child and had the lengthy testing done. Report showed schizophrenia and possibly multiple personalities. No further documents. Uh, previous crimes. Yes, he had these, you know, different theft and conspiracy to commit theft and also multiple driving while intoxicated. To me, that's actually more telling uh, that he's a serial killer than a theft because apparently serial killers can't drive. They're busy thinking about something. Did he spend time in jail? No. He, he spent a few days in jail, but they're saying no. Did he spend time in prison? They're saying no. Had he killed prior to this series and what age? They say no. Well, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, does it? No. So here's uh, the serial killing aspect of all of this for this profile. 
Okay, so it says number of victims. 16 identified to him, expected to be more. Victim type, victim type is homosexual men. Uh, killer age at the start of the series. They say 38. So that would be like when the I-70 Strangler cases started. Well, he dies at age 49 in 1996. So 38 is going to be nine years before that. So that's actually going to be in 1987. Do you follow me? I mean, I sort of do. I don't know. I feel like this whole profile is pretty subjective. So Oh, it's totally subjective. Uh, the gender of his victims is male. The race of his victims, to date, I believe it is still white, right? All the victims so far. I've never seen any other race identified. One of them uh, is... Well, um, Devoy Lee Baker. But I, I don't feel like he's his victim. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I think you and I figured out what happened there. But I don't... You know, it's weird because we do all this work and then record and then wrap things up afterwards and we don't come back around to that. But that one, like we're bordering on libel. If we tell the truth there, as strange as that is, we've got a 15 year old, two 17 year olds, two 20 year olds, a 21 year old, two 22 year olds, three 26 year olds, a 27 year old, a 28 year old, two 31 year olds, a 34 year old and a 46 year old. I'm going to come back to that list and the, ages in just a second method of killing with strangulation the type of killer is he's an organized lust killer uh how close did the killer live to victims is unknown did killing occur in the home of the victim no and this question is interesting did the killing occur in the home of the killer they're saying yes it did okay that's interesting for the number of victims that they're talking about. And then I'm not arguing with it. I'm just saying that's interesting. Why would he then dispose of them the way he was disposing of some of them? If uh, that, well, I don't, I don't know that that was a blanket. I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it may mean that he, they just think he killed a couple of them there, which I would agree with and we're getting there. Uh, did he use a weapon? There's no weapon. I think that ropes count as weapons. But that's just me. Behavior during the crimes. Did he rape anyone? It says no, but they had mutual sex. Uh, did he torture his victims? The answer is he strangled them. Did he stalk his victims? They say no. Was there overkill? They say he burned them after death. Was it quick and efficient? No. Did he use a blindfold? No. Did he bind the victims? They say yes, with handcuffs. He, at the post-mortem behavior, the after-death behavior, they ask, did he have sex with the body? Did he mutilate the body? Eat, drink, pose the body? Did he take any part of the body or personal items? Did he rob the victim or the location? And the answer to all of those for Herb Baumeister is a no. Now we get into disposal as we kind of wind down this piece of paper here. Were they left at the scene with no attempt to hide? They say yes. And then they say they used his bones as gravel for his yard, which we haven't really said to people yet, but we kind of indicated there are bones buried there. 
So that's kind of a spoiler. Sorry. Did he leave it at the scene hidden? They say yes. He put some of the bones down a creek at his residence. And then were any of them left at the scene burned? And they say, uh, buried. And they say, yes, he buried them in a burn pile. Uh, Was there bodies that were moved with no attempt to hide? They say no. Were there bodies that were moved and buried? They say no. And were they cut up and disposed of? They say no. And were there bodies that he took home? They say no. And then so the date that the killer was arrested is not applicable. He committed suicide before he could be arrested. So everything else goes out the window. Uh, And that is July 3rd of 1996. Okay. So the way that you'll come across Herb is he is identified as being responsible for what are known as the Fox Hollow Farm killings. Do you think that's accurate? Yes. Okay. So with Herb and his whole shenanigans here, what had been happening in his reality leading up to his death was the police had realized that Herb had been calling himself aliases and sneaking around gay bars. Now, according to the Marion County Sheriff's Department, they had been looking for particular height, weight, age men in the Indianapolis area to connect to some different homicides. And it sort of comes out a much, much longer time later that there was some different levels of photography and video that had come to their attention. It wasn't the greatest quality on the planet. But it had indicated to them that they might have some images of their suspect. Now, Herb lines up with that in terms of the the victims that we're talking about sort of at the end. Okay, so I want to talk about them for a minute. Between June 24th, 1996 and Herb's death, investigators, after speaking with the attorney who Juliana's attorney basically says, you have to tell the cops about those bones. Remember that like we told you to, we told you guys to, to tell people in panic. Well, that attorney told her to tell people in panic. So she did it. The cops come out, they start digging around. What is wild about these bones is What we know of it starts the night of June 23rd, 1996, into June 24th, 1996. In 2023, they're still finding bones at this location. I I cannot, like, restate that enough. Now, the initial recovery was for what they thought was 11 people. The property that the Baumeisters owned was 18 acres. Eight people have been identified in an initial discovery, and that is Johnny Bayer, who is 20 years old. He's the first one. Jeff Jones is 31. He went missing in July 1993. He's the second identified person. Richard Hamilton went missing in July of 1993. He's 20 years old. 
Emmanuel Resendez was 31. Uh, he went missing August 1993. August Lee Livingston was 27 when he went missing August 6th of 1993. He was recovered in the first go-round, but he was not identified. Alan Livingston was not identified until, I think, October of 2023. Does that sound right? Yes, I think so. Okay. Um, I've seen pictures of him, like I'd seen them circulating kind of over the holidays and stuff where like they were glad he could be sort of identified and put to rest. Uh, Stephen Hale was 28 when he went missing in April of 94. Alan Broussard, we talked about, he was 28 when he went missing in June of 1994. And Roger Goodlett was 33 when he went missing. Now they add another guy in there whose jacket was found at Herb's residence. And that's Michael or Mike Kime. He was 45 years old. He was last seen March 31st of 1995. The authorities have publicly and posthumously linked Jerry Williams Comer, who was 34 years old. He was last seen in August of 1995. His vehicle was found like abandoned at the mall. And that was after his disappearance. And he fit the profile, but he hasn't been recovered from the residence. So I don't know, like, he's just kind of on that list. But let's just look at that for a second. So that's Johnny, Jeff, Richard, Manuel, Alan, Stephen, Alan, Roger, Michael, and Jerry. That's 10. Okay. Okay, how are we splitting the hairs here? Are we giving Larry Eiler all the stabbing victims from the I-70 Strangler and everybody that has a rope goes to Herb? I don't know. I, I'm pretty confident um, Herb never stabbed anybody. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I don't think he stabbed anybody. The, the thing that I can't wrap my head around is, like, how are they like when the cops look at when the cops look at this? What is like? What did they go? It's these sixteen people. It's these eighteen people because I the numbers are all over the place. In fact, his reported body count is eleven to twenty five plus. If see, I can't figure out. Okay, I, I want to be clear about what you just said about the guy whose car was found in the mall parking lot. Yeah, that's weird. Because that's like he went missing from the mall, right? Yeah. Okay. Baumeister did not kidnap anybody. They went with him willingly. Right. And each and every time, and and he had encounters with at least one, probably more than one person that didn't end up dying. I don't feel like he was a organized less killer. I feel like they've uh, missed the boat on that. I also feel, I don't feel like he was sexually motivated. I feel like his uh, sexual relationships uh, provided an opportunity, but I don't think that that was what was driving him. I think that he was kind of pushing the limits and ultimately the people that he killed, I think he killed them because he could. 
I could I could see that. Like I would I mean But you're not gonna have a whole bunch of missing people that like weren't last seen at a club, right? That are gonna end up being this guy's victims. He he did not take people. Well, I mean, I could see him meeting people a couple of different ways, but I, uh, so I'll say this. I agree with what you're saying. I don't think it necessarily had to just have been a gay bar. But no, I think no, that- you're right. But like he, he was in a situation where the person went willingly with him. Right. So and however that worked back then. Right. Yeah. There was nothing about what he was doing not just went willingly with him, knew they were going to have sex with him. It was a hookup. And yeah, it was. It, this was essentially good casual sex. It just ended with death. Now, the reason we know that is because in the course of all this happening, a guy that went home with him had an experience that he found to be odd especially in light of the situation where some of his uh, acquaintances had disappeared, right? Even some of his friends, I think. And basically we have a guy who comes forward and he tells detectives about his consensual experience with this guy. And that is initially what leads them to have her be a suspect to begin with. And it's actually quite a leap, but it's not wrong. Yeah. So have you narrowed down exactly what happened there in your opinion? I know know what happened there. Um, he, He thought it was weird. And so he came forward, but he didn't have enough identifying information, not to mention the fact that like there was no crime committed against him. Right. This was all consensual. What happened was he had choked the guy in the process and he pretended to pass out. And so the guy let up, right? Yeah. And once he let up, he he made like a big joke out of it. The the victim did. And well, he wasn't really the victim, but he, you know, he wasn't hurt. He was, he was he was about to be a victim. Well, yeah, I think that that's what was happening there. The guy, so the guy is being choked, and then he plays it off. Right, and he so I don't know what transpired in his mind, um, but he ends up, he just has her taken back to where they had met up. And for whatever reason, at some point in time, he says, hey, this is weird. I wonder if my encounter could be something to do with, some of my acquaintances that have gone missing. That's the story, right? It's weird. It's a little bit of a stretch, but perhaps it was so, like, it was so weird and so isolated at that point in time that, you know, he made the connection legitimately. I don't know. It didn't seem like he was, like, necessarily trying to get this guy in trouble. He just was saying, look, this is the experience I had. Well, he couldn't – he didn't have enough identifying information about her Baumeister to identify him to authorities. All he could do was give them descriptions of, like, you know, the various things. Well, at some point in time – 
he ends up, I believe, so he, he goes back to Opie's or wherever it was that they hooked up and he waited to see if he came back, right? And in the meantime, he was trying to see if they were looking to see if he could identify the property, I believe. Well, okay, so I, I've read a couple of different stories about how this happened. So uh, our place is one of the places, and Brothers Bar was another place. Have you read about Virgil Vandegriff and how he kind of gets into this mix? Who? Virgil Vandegriff. Who's that? So he's a private investigator. And he started a private investigations firm in Indianapolis in 1982. Now, he pops up in the mainstream media, which is the only reason that I'm mentioning him here. So he basically was contracted, contacted, contracted by Alan Broussard's mom in 1994. And he was missing. Yeah, he was missing at the time. So he started poking around into Alan's life and like he came across brothers, the bar, and he realized that a police detective named Mary Wilson was kind of poking around in the same area that he was poking around into. And then uh, while he was like reading some different articles about you know local situations, he came across the Jeff Jones case, and Jeff Jones had disappeared in 1993. So Vandegrift sort of inserts himself from the perspective of, I wonder if I can help anybody. And they started going around, uh, and when they, so Mary Wilson is involved, but she's officially law enforcement, so she can't do everything Vandegrift can do and vice versa. So Vandegrift has an associate with him named uh, Bill Hillsley, and the two of them start kind of poking around looking for Alan. And they realized that for some reason, the people at Brothers and Our Place, they're not all that interested in talking to the cops because of the treatment that we sort of described in the beginning of the series. And this includes the owners and like all the regulars, but they were able to get the light blue car with an Ohio license plate that somebody had picked up at one point. And they give this information to the cops and the cops weren't all that interested. So Vandegrift keeps going after it. And the way, and I don't know who this guy is, by the way, because he reads like his name is Tony Harris, but I also read that Tony Harris was a pseudonym given to him for his protection. Um, right. Uh, I actually, I saw two different names. Yeah. So he had known Roger Goodlett and he sees these posters that Vandegrift is putting up and he believes that he had some information, which is this license plate. And that's sort of what puts it down like this path because Tony Harris, whoever his, his real name is, and I've seen him talk now. I still don't know what his real name is. Um, he had talked to her. He had been in situations where like he had seen him and he had talked to him. And the way his story rolls out, if you go and read it, is that uh, he introduces himself to like chat the guy up thinking of Roger. 
And the guy introduces himself back to Tony as Brian Smart and kind of blows him off. But he ends up inviting Tony out. And he basically says, hey, let's we're going to go get a drink. And I think he said they were going to go for a swim. So they get into Brian's car and they head out like they're going to go have a date. He actually takes Tony to Fox Hollow Farm, and that's where everything unfolds that you were sort of describing. Now, they're doing cocaine. They're doing whatever. The idea was they were going to have sex, and he chokes him out, which I I thought that was – I don't know how accurate all of that is, but that was a really ballsy move. I I feel like it spun – to be much more ballsy later. Yeah, I, I think once her was dead, it was a lot easier to tell. I feel us. like this is something that occurred, and it, he perhaps wasn't quite as heroic as it's portrayed. I'm not saying anything bad about it. I'm just saying there were people. Now, one of the things was he was able to say, like, there was a, once they had identified the property, he was able to say there's an indoor pool in that house, right? Which is not something, it it gave him credibility having been in the house. He was still just at the point where he'd had a consensual encounter with this guy. Yeah. And so I, I wonder how much of that was spin. And I've seen like some really interesting, I don't know how to say it. A case like this doesn't get the deep coverage that accurate at the time information like when each of these guys go missing, there's a blurb about them, but most of it's completely after the fact, after it's revealed that there's attached to a serial killer. It wasn't interesting until that moment. But I feel like you're comparing um, apples to oranges. Yeah, a, a little bit. I, I, I am a little bit. But I think that in order to sell this story to a large audience here and there, by the papers, magazines that did cover it, they had to tell a lot of BS. And one of my favorite things about all of this is that the wife initially says to the cops, you know, go away. But ends up giving consent because they tell her they believe she's in danger. And they specifically scare the crap out of her about her kids. It was warranted. Yeah, yeah. They should have been. uh, He actually had his kids with him as part of what the problem was because they were separated, right? Yeah. They were visiting with him. And, uh, you know, he does end up committing suicide. And so the fear that he was unstable. uh, Now, his his children were teenagers at that point. Uh, They weren't little. But. It was a warranted concern. It wasn't like they just used it to, um, as a ruse, right? Yeah, it is not a fishing expedition. It is deadly serious. And it only gets more serious because, you know, I, okay, if you take the I-70 strangler part out of this, which I'm going to get to that in one second, like why you should do that. There's bodies laying all over this guy's driveway. Yeah, there are. 
And, and that alone to me is enough to say, yes, this is a bizarre and terrifying human being that does not look like it. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll see you next time. This is True Crime XS. All right, so I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXCESS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some Cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution, or an ORS, that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes and true crime access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. 
Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all natural, whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. But Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. 
To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50-plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guests. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation, too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all-in-one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras, and now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access. You can also use the code true crime access at checkout. 
That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code TRUECRIMEXS.